For me, it's going to Target in the morning, not a bookstore, but it's not rocket science why this happens. It's a calm environment, quiet, walking slowly, all activities that the parasympathetic nervous system are activated by. So there you go. There's that. Um, Also, interesting theory. Came across this headline yesterday from uh, The Onion. Bankrupt Toys R Us forced to euthanize thousands of Hatchimals. (laughs) (laughs) Which I thought was pretty funny. Nice. And speaking of animals, did everyone see the uh, the picture of our pug dressed as Donald Trump? Yes, we posted that on Facebook, the Twitter, uh, and the Instagram. About to pop right out of its head. Yeah, it does look like his eyeballs. Did are you see pop what out. I tweeted back yesterday? I've seen that look on the face of tweakers as they're arrested in the early morning. That kind of crazed eyeball look. He had the Trump Pugs hair. Look like they smoke meth. Had the Trump hair. He had the the little tie. That's right. That was the point. It was Trump. And as one of our favorite tweeters said. Tiny paws, sad. <laughs> it's got the red tie and everything. So there is a, yeah. So there is a, uh, a book out. Marshall brought this to me from the Wall Street Journal, and I have started reading the book. John Cogan, who is 70 years old, and he's a Stanford guy, a Hoover Institution, has written a 400-page account of how the federal entire entitled, hmm. Why don't you just say handouts? <laughs> It's a 400-page account of how the federal entitlement programs evolved across two centuries and the common forces that have been at work causing their expansion. What is the name of said uh, tome? Oh, yeah, the title of the book. You probably want that. Moby Dick. (laughs) I've heard of this. Interesting. Uh, It's called The High Cost of Good Intentions, which Ah. gives you a little hint of where he's going with, uh, with his thing. Um, I'll hit you with just a little bit of info here. And just, just, just the preface and the uh, and the first chapter are freaking amazing. The scale of federal entitlement assistance today is unmatched in human history. That's a hell of a sentence, right there. Mm-hmm. Never before in the world, anywhere. I don't doubt that. No, I don't doubt it either. Fifty-five percent of all U.S. households receive cash or in-kind assistance from at least one major federal program. The maze of overlapping and entitlement programs each which each, I give up. No, no. So I'll go just home. slow down. No, you're doing great. Now. It's Jack, okay. It's, you're doing fine. You know what? Print journalism. That's what I should be in. I'll just type these things out and people can read them in the future. You're doing great. I can take my time. I'll pick up my phone and I'll try it again. The maze of overlapping entitlement programs, each with its own eligibility rules. Allows 120 million people, two-thirds of all entitlement recipients, to simultaneously collect benefits from at least two programs. Mm. So two-thirds of all the people on entitlements get benefits from at least two programs. Nearly a third collect benefits from three or more federal entitlement programs simultaneously. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it is freaking amazing. And the percentages of the population, I was doing some quick math in my head. So it's, you know, it's less than half, but almost half, are on two programs and, you know, somewhere around... Quarter on three. So, Mr. Kogan... Re- a quarter. I mean, if if you're like a blind person, great. Super. I could see you being on two, three programs. You know, you're, you're mentally ill, developmentally disabled, something like that. 25% of the population ain't in that boat. Right. Not even close. Right. Mr. Kogan conceived of the book about four years ago when, as part of his research into 19th century spending patterns, he saw this remarkable phenomenon of the growth in Civil War pensions. By the 1890s, 30 years after it had ended, 
Pensions from the war accounted for 40% of all federal government spending. Boy, talk radio must have had a heyday with that. Oh, yeah. Can you believe this? In the late 1800s. React to me. I'll take your calls. About a million people. I'll take your letters. (laughs) (laughs) About a million people were getting Civil War pensions, he found, compared with 8,000 in 1873, eight years after the end of the war. So it went from 8,000 eight years after the end of the war to the 1890s where you had a million people doing it. Mr. Kogan wondered what caused this extraordinary growth and whether it was unique. Well, it turns out it's not. When he went back to the stacks to look at pensions from the Revolutionary War, he saw exactly the same pattern. It dawned on him, he said, that this matched the evolutionary pattern of modern entitlements like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, food stamps. As he explains it, entitlement programs typically begin with relatively narrow eligibility requirements. For the Civil War and Revolutionary War pensions, he said, Original eligibility was limited to soldiers who had been injured in wartime service or widows of those killed in battle. Marching and fighting wasn't enough. You had to have lost a life or a limb for your country, but these rules were incrementally relaxed. And by 30 or 40 years after each war, virtually all veterans were covered, regardless of whether you were disabled or not, and regardless of whether or not your disability was related to wartime service or not. Uh, We've seen the same phenomenon in modern entitlements. When Social Security started, we had about 50% of the workforce covered. That was in 1935. By the 1950s, coverage was universal. It happened that fast. Um, He goes through how uh, the little by little expansion, and this is where it gets to the human nature part, where it's going to be very hard to ever stop this. You start making the argument, okay, so you 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 grant the benefits to people who served in the war in the in the Continental Army. And then somebody makes the argument five years later, well, what about the state militias? They fought, they put their lives on the line, and they were fought and fighting for the same cause, so why shouldn't they get it? And Fair enough. And everybody says, okay, I guess so. And then you say, and this is particular back in the day when uh, when uh, you know the, the male was always the breadwinner, but what about the families of all these, these people who died? Um, well, yeah, I guess you're right. The whole family needs to be taken care of because, you know, they, they're, they're, a family goes to war, not just a soldier himself. And so you've expanded it to the whole family. And then just little by little by little, this happens until you're covering so many people that it no longer financially makes any sense. The, again, the title of the book is The High Cost of Good Intentions. You can, you can understand the arguments at each increment, but where you end up is unsustainable. So what do you do about that? He talks about the Entitlement Reform Hall of Fame. And you might be surprised at the first name that he puts in the, re- in the Entitlement Reform Hall of Fame, which is Franklin Roosevelt. Um, he stepped in. Within seven days of office, he pared back the entitlements that had grown out of control for World War I veterans, the f- veterans of the Philippine War, the Boxer Rebellion veterans, all these different veterans that had just gotten just completely out of hand mm. and pared them all back. Boxer Rebellion, boy, the boxers were really doing well until, you know, because they'd punch you right in the face until people with guns showed up, and then it was over. <laughs> and then, by the way, while, while FDR was a big government... Plus, they'd stop fighting every time they heard a bell ring. <laughs> oh, back so, to the corner. Hello. The good people of America triumphed. Back to you. Um, uh, well, FDR was a big government guy, and, you know, uh, uh, New Deal and all those. And he didn't, he didn't intend the various uh, entitlements that he put together, as we just mentioned. Social Security was supposed to cover 50% of people, and it covered everybody within a couple of years. Not long after he was dead. Well, the cover, quote-unquote cover, the number of people receiving benefits in 1940 because of lifespan was 1% of the There's total population. That, yeah. There's also that. And, and now it's it's huge, and but we haven't changed it because we thought, well, 
you know, it's it's good for old people to get money, but the program was never designed to do what it's starting to do. You know, it's funny, FDR, he might be the patron saint, I didn't realize of this, of what I'm trying to convince uh, as a libertarian, a small government type person, I'm trying to convince my liberal friends, of my progressive friends, if we could rein in the government, if we could make the government more re- responsible, if we could eliminate the redundancy, the waste, etc., just pare it down completely, there would be so much money to do what you want to do for society. You would, you would be like Donald Trump. You would be able to write checks for millions of dollars to pursue your progressive causes. Handicapped, mentally ill, whatever. Oh, we have yeah, plenty of money for all that. Yeah. The really important stuff. Join me as a, a fiscal conservative. We'll have tons of money to do what you want to do as a progressive. But people don't see it that way. What are the other two presidents in the Hall of Fame of trying to rein in entitlements? Grover Cleveland and Ronald Reagan. Now, the Grover Cleveland example is hilarious and disturbing that really? this was going on in our country. And then the recipe from this professor on what we can do about it. And it's a little uh, depressing and grim. Is there anything we can do about this? Uh, well, there is, but uh, it's hard to imagine it ever happening. President Grover Cleveland, not many people know this. He's the grandfather of both Grover from Sesame Street and Cleveland from Family Guy. Did not know that. That's that nasty. <laughs> That's nasty. That's right. <laughs> yeah, the Grover Cleveland example is kind of funny. Stay tuned to the Armstrong and Getty Show. Attention. Attention, this is Conan O'Brien. This is an important announcement. Will all Israeli men wearing Speedos please leave the area? Again, all Israeli men wearing Speedos. No one wants to see your junk. Also, why is there an Elvis impersonator on the beach in Tel Aviv? So that's Conan O'Brien. He did his show in uh, Israel for some reason. And he went and insulted our allies. And do the Israelis wear the Speedos on the beach like a lot of Euros do? Oh, yeah. Okay. (laughs) Nice. That's interesting. That's interesting culturally. I see that at the pool now and then. Your Euros and their Speedos. And I think, dude, not around my kids. (laughs) I don't know. I I think they're probably more together than we are. It's the puritanical American uh, tradition or Mm. something or other. You like those awkward tan lines midway up the thigh? That's I just just don't need to see it. The banana hammock. So I'm talking about this book, uh, and I'll wrap this up here, because, you know, some of you don't want to hear this, which is why our country is doomed. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. If you don't want to hear this, our country is doomed. The greatest threat to our national security, clearly, debt. Yeah, the, The High Cost of Good Intentions. It's a new book, 400 pages about the history of the entitlement programs, and, uh, one thing he mentions on why entitlement programs get out of hand is Congress's failure. I'm quoting from his book now. Congress's failure to appreciate how an offer of entitlement assistance can cause individuals to change their circumstances to qualify for aid that they've previously managed to live without. Congress, for some reason, doesn't anticipate that. I think, well, for me anyway, it just seems pretty clearly obvious that a lot of people are going to do that. I think the great missing piece of most Government policy is, um, how do I put this? I I think the great blind spot is static analysis. If we change X, all it will change is X. 
if we offer this benefit, all those people living in the way they're living will now have this benefit. And it ignores the fact, and, and scientists know this. I mean, real scientists, not social scientists. Uh, but real scientists know if you change a factor in a chemistry experiment, in anything, even in economics, everything else changes to to accommodate, to react to it, et cetera, et cetera. But so often in social policy, like you point out, we'll, uh, these people are living this way. We'll give them this benefit. They'll continue living this way and have this benefit. But that's not the way humanity reacts. Nobody's going to have an extra kid or five because we gave them money to support those kids, for instance. Right. Nobody's going to not look for work because we're giving them money for being out of work, mm-hmm. for instance. Right. And then it applies to everything. So he, uh, he's he got the uh, Reforming Entitlement Hall of Fame, and it ain't much. He got three presidents, and they did a little, which lasted a little while. But FDR pared back uh, uh, entitlements we had for a whole bunch of war veterans that had grown out of control. Um, we'll get to and, Ronald and, Reagan in a second. And for all of FDR's sins, in my mind, in, in terms of giant government, he did design a program, Social Security, that would pay benefits to approximately 1% of the population at the time. Now it's, uh, I think it's 18 times, well, it's about 20 times as much, because it used to be uh, less than 1%. When Mr. Kogan's asked, asked about the Entitlement Reform Hall of Fame, his eyes light up and he utters the two words he seems to love most, Grover Cleveland. I'm going to have to read more about, Grover Cleveland's making a comeback. There's a couple of biographies in the last year or so, they're supposed oh, to be great. time. Yeah. And or biographers are just running out of interesting presidents. He was the very first president to take on an entitlement. He objected to the large Civil War program and thought it needed to be reformed. Cleveland was largely unsuccessful, but was remarkably courageous in doing this. In his time, Congress had started passing private relief bills, giving out individual pensions on a grand scale. They would take a vote. They would have 100 or 200 votes on a Friday afternoon about an individual On whether or not that person ought to get entitlements. And they do a couple hundred every Friday. Wow. Similar then as now, Friday afternoon, kind of won't, you know, get lost in the newspaper, the shuffle of what's going on in the world. They are all in on it together. So, yeah, your person in Virginia needs this. Okay, we'll vote for that. Obviously, we'll all vote for my my one guy here in, uh, you know, Kentucky or whatever. And they would do this regularly, hundreds of votes on a Friday afternoon, and pass them all with a single vote. Incredibly, 55% of the bills introduced in the Senate in 1885 uh, were such private pension bills. Wow. So over half of the bills introduced. So government's no worse now than it was then. Direct certainly. handouts. Grover Cleveland started vetoing these private bills right away. 220 of them in his first term, which explains why he still holds the record for the most vetoes. And then he began, as he got more and more exasperated, to attach a little note to his vetoes explaining why. Uh Considering one involving a widow who claimed her husband who had died in battle. Cleveland noted that the man had died in 1882. Mm. So it was difficult to die in the Civil War in 1882. Well, he was so busy fighting, he didn't realize the war had ended. And said, Courageous uh, man. And wrote, no cause is given for the soldier's death, but it's not claimed that it resulted from his military service. It turns out he choked to death on a piece of beef while gorging himself in a drunken spree in 1882. Wow. So I veto this particular bill for Civil Civil War benefits. Wow. The... The, always, you know, same as it ever was. Meet same the new boss. Was, yeah. Same as the old boss. Human nature does not change. Uh, and it talks about Ronald Reagan, who was pretty successful, fought a very good fight as he slowed the growth of entitlements like no other president ever had. He achieved significant reductions in 81 and 82 and then battled to preserve those changes throughout the rest of his two terms. He's had the most success of any president, but he didn't uh, uh, eliminate any of these programs. He only slowed them. Um 
which was the best that he could do. Does Billy Jeff get any love? He gets an honorable mention okay. for the welfare reform. Um, And I'll wrap this up with... That would be Bill Clinton, those not familiar with my charming nickname. The author of this Wall Street Journal piece says, I asked Mr. Kogan how America can break its grip on ever-expanding entitlements that's got us $20 trillion in debt. Mr. Kogan's, uh said... It would take a significant agreement among the general public and the elected representatives that there is a problem. Never mind. So that might just be a hurdle we can't get over. I'm done. You'd have to have an agreement between most people, most of whom are getting money, so they don't want to do anything about it, or not paying attention at all while they're getting their money. Or are the sort that uh, enact policy based on their feelings and not a rational assessment of the amount of money available and what we ought to do with it. Right. So he says the public and the politicians would have to agree that there is a problem, and then it would have to be bipartisan, obviously, because it's the only way you could ever actually do it. And that seems pretty unlikely at this point in history. We are going to have to get to the point of Greece where awful things are happening. I mean, bad things are happening. We can't fund our military. We're cutting down programs that help people that really, really need it. There are, uh, or we can't borrow any more money. We can't borrow any more money. The, the stock market is tanking. Um, there's civil unrest in the streets. We're going to have to get to that point before there'd be bipartisan effort to actually do anything about it. I think. Yeah, and I suspect, given the recent history of republics that have spent themselves into bankruptcy, I think what would be decided by the people in the streets would probably be incredibly unwise. I mean, he gets it. It's just, but it's just human It'd nature. Full, we'd go to full socialism. It's it's always been this way. You think you think people were, uh, I don't know, more more patriotic or or just better people or whatever way back in the day. But when they started giving out Revolutionary War pensions, all of a sudden there was an explosion. And everybody was thinking, there's no way. You know, they didn't have a modern census and, 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 and a way to keep track of this. But they would say, there's no way these numbers add up. There's no way all these people were Revolutionary War veterans. Right. People are lying. Right. Lots of people were lying. Same with the Civil War. They were just lying. Yeah, I'm a Civil War veteran. My knee hurts. Or whatever, right. so they could get their pensions. <laughs> and there were millions and millions of people that it was just impossible that the numbers that were big. But people were that willing to screw their own country to get some money then as now. And ah! it, you may be familiar with the history of it. A lot of the Revolutionary War soldiers who were actually actually soldiers never got any money. They got screwed. Right. It's something. Human nature does not change. Doesn't matter if you had more people going to church and they were a lot closer to the founding of the country and the reason for being and that sort of stuff. People were still willing to lie to get on the. I'm going to get mine by cracky. Get on the government dole. Sure. And the politicians were still willing to go along with it if it would keep get them reelected. Yep. Yeah, that hasn't changed a bit. Yep. I don't know if that was good information or just just discouraging. Just discouraging. (laughs) (laughs) And and the other half of it, people of good, you know, well-meaning people. Again, the high cost of good intentions. Well-meaning people who think, oh, no, this will help the people who need it. This is a good idea. Not aware that it's been tried a hundred times before and always goes wrong in the same ways over and over again. But, no, we build it and we build it and we build it. Right. What's coming up in your news, Marshall Phillips? Well, debate over health care grinds on. Late-night TV host Jimmy Kimmel joins in. Sessions in Portland blasting sanctuary cities, and we got another setback for Billy Bush. Stories coming up minutes from now. Armstrong and Getty. Is it related to the release of the tape? That's the question. Well, stay tuned. Well, you and your your gossip, I mean, that's very interesting. The tease that caught my attention. Yeah, the Republicans, in case you missed this, 
are trotting out another Obamacare uh, reform law. I thought they'd given up. No. I'd hope they'd given up. Lindsey Graham, don't give up. Let's do taxes, please. He'll prance on in there, and I'm oh, sorry. I didn't need whoa. to say that. I, I didn't need to say that. <laughs> wow. That was, that was not important. Stay tuned to the Armstrong and Getty Show. We are just discussing whether or not Ho Chi Minh was a committed communist and all agree that he probably wasn't. That's the kind of discussion we have behind the scenes. That's not always the kind of discussion right. we have behind the scenes. Sometimes they're much less. Yes. Mark toe hurts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that sort of thing. Uh, let's get the news now with Marsha Phillips. Yeah, you got Senate Republicans and President Trump continuing to try to get the 50 Senate votes needed to pass a last-ditch repeal of Obamacare before a September 30th procedural deadline. Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, one of the co-sponsors of the bill, said of the measure, We know how this movie ends if we don't change. We're going to have a single-payer health care system in this country that's going to bust the budget, and we're going to start rationing care like you've never seen. Well, yeah, that's true enough, but are they trying to do it through reconciliation still? That's never going to work. McCain's right. Take it to committee. Write a law. Right. Right, and that's what McCain is still pressing for. Well, well Lindsey Graham... Uh, and I think Lindsey Graham is absolutely right on this. He says if we don't do health care, we're doomed as a party. Well, true enough. Yeah, but do tax reform first, then go to committee and write a law. That's what I say. Bye, Gilly. Because, because you know, we've, we've said it, he says it, everybody said it. You can't make the same promise for seven years <laughs> in front of everybody right. in your crowd cheering and yelling and then do nothing about it. You just can't do that and continue to be a party. But it's so clear. It is so clear. They're never going to get it done the quick and easy way through reconciliation. they got to start from scratch. Jimmy Kimmel has joined in the argument. He's not pleased with the Republican plan to repeal and replace Obamacare. He reminded his audience last night it wasn't that long ago. He made a tearful plea on his late-night show. And a completely uninformed plea. For all Americans to have access to affordable health care after his newborn son underwent emergency heart surgery. He later had Louisiana Senator Bill Cassidy on to discuss the issue, the same man that's now backing the Graham-Cassidy health reform bill. Kimmel last night. Do you believe that every American, regardless of income, should be able to get regular checkups, maternity care, etc., all of those things that people who have health care get and need? Yep. So, yep, is Washington for nope, I guess. Cassidy originally said any health care bill should have to pass what he dubbed the Jimmy Kimmel test, meaning if somebody less well-off than Kimmel's family were faced with the same medical situation, they'd be able to afford the cost of care. Kimmel said last night that in backing this other bill... And this guy, Bill Cassidy, just lied right to my face. Cassidy was responding this morning on CNN. I'm sorry he does not understand. Under Graham, Cassidy, Heller, Johnson, more people will have coverage, and we protect those with pre-existing conditions. States like Maine, Virginia, Florida, Missouri, there'll be billions of more, billions more dollars to, prefer, to provide health insurance coverage for those in those states who have been passed by by Obamacare, and we protect those with pre-existing conditions. Just in the general uh, entitlement of does everybody deserve you know health care and all that right. stuff, that gets back to that entitlement conversation we were just having with the author. People will adjust the, the thing Congress misses. People will adjust their lifestyle if health care becomes a universal right. People that used to take jobs to get health care 
will no longer have to do that. Maybe you think that's fine, but there will be a change in behavior because of the entitlement. Right. Yeah, yeah. We don't have time, but I suppose we'll be wrestling over this for the next six months. What do you think, just briefly, about Jimmy Kimmel jumping into this just as a, as a move for his show? Like, in terms of entertainment? Uh, no, in ter- well, in terms oh, of his oh, audience. Oh, interjecting himself with a specific he, political policy. Yeah, right. he hasn't done that like Colbert. He hasn't, like, picked a side. Yeah, boy, my, my answer to that's really complicated because of the situation with his son. I think he misunderstands the history and significance of a lot of policy. I just think he got a lot of the his assumptions wrong in the discussion. But at the same time, he's got a... A little boy who needs multiple heart surgeries, so in the time I have, I really don't feel like engaging. But it it's a change for his show. I think he's a really nice guy. I think he gets some stuff wrong. Attorney General Jeff Sessions didn't pull any punches in the so-called Sanctuary City of Portland, the nation's top law enforcement official, saying Sanctuary City policies undermine the moral authority of the law. He went on to say that if police don't work with federal immigration agents, criminals will walk the streets. Think about that. Police may be forced to release pedophiles, rapists, murderers, drug dealers, and arsonists back onto our streets and into our communities where they had no right to be in the first place. Sessions calling Sanctuary cities the best friends of traffickers, smugglers, and drug dealers. And outside the venue, yet protesters chanting, no hate, no fear, immigrants are welcome here. We don't like the direction that we're headed. We, uh, we definitely want to show support to our immigrant community, and uh, we don't feel that the government is headed in the right direction with the decisions that they've been making. How many? How many? Uh, how many? How many is enough for you? How many? Uh, how many people, and under what circumstances should they be permitted to enter the country? Uh, does she have any interest in that discussion? I doubt it. Billy Bush dealing with another setback. TV personality lost his job in the Today Show after a vulgar interview with Donald Trump was leaked 11 months ago. Why? Now, why? Why did he lose his job when that came out? Because he laughed. Is that right? Uh, yeah, and he kind of egged him on. It sounded like he was pro pee grabbing <laughs> <laughs> or something. And, and his it, wife, at the time, I remember there were right. tabloid stories anyway, that his wife was horrified that her husband had engaged in that sort of conversation or something. Which all he did was, yeah, 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 right. yeah, crazy guy. Uh, yeah. Hmm. Anyway, now. Yeah, 30 seconds before he's about to record a segment with him, he didn't really feel like calling him to the carpet for his social behaviors. You're a real pig. Did you know that? And a misogynist. I don't care what sort of a young woman it is. There's no reason to to treat her like that. Now let's talk about The Apprentice. (laughs) (laughs) So, meatloaf is weird, right? Uh, now Billy Bush's publicist is uh, saying that Bush and his wife at 20 years are getting separated. couple has three uh, daughters together, but it looks like the Bush marriage is ending. That's at, too bad. That's your news. I'm Marshall Phillips, the Armstrong and Getty Show, the voice of the West. So we're talking to a Washington Post reporter about what? About the raid of Paul Manafort's house, the state of the investigation, the high stakes, etc. The investigation in Russian collusion, and it could go in many different places. Okay. Yeah. I don't think this got enough attention, actually. I think this is an example of uh, the Russia story not getting enough attention coming up on the Armstrong and Getty Show.
Now, me personally, I've thought a lot of the Trump-Russia stories were overblown, overreported, overcovered, that sort of stuff. But I then, would agree. But then I thought, I watched some Fox yesterday. Maybe they covered it someplace on some shows. But I watched a lot of Fox yesterday and didn't see anything like on the Manafort raid stuff hmm. that was out. And I thought, that's a pretty big story. Um, the campaign manager for the current president, the FBI, went in his house, picked the lock to get in, which is not something they do very often. Uh you know, if you're kind of a criminal, they send you a letter or knock on your door. If you're more than that, they knock on your door. If you're really over the top, they show up and they, they pick your lock and come in the house before you have a chance to do anything. Again, ladies and gentlemen, I must point out bad American Jack with a presumption of guilt here. It's shocking to the conscience. Let's talk to Washington Post Department of Justice reporter Matt Zapatoski, who joins us now about the Manafort raid and some uh, related matters. Matt, how are you, sir? Hey, good, good. Thanks for having me. It's been too long since we've talked to you. Um, so uh, what do you make of the Manafort raid? Is it as notable as my co-host has suggested? I think it is pretty notable, and I think what it shows is just how aggressive prosecutors are being here. In white-collar cases, you just don't see raids like this typically. Now, some people would say, you should, you know, we should be just as aggressive with white-collar criminals as we are with violent criminals, but you just don't see these things. Usually you see subpoenas, negotiations with lawyers. You don't see, you know, people showing up, FBI agents showing up with guns in the early morning hours and and coming into people's, uh, you know, nice condos in in D.C. suburbs. That that generally doesn't happen in white-collar cases. So I definitely think it's a notable step here. Do I understand correctly that Manafort was under investigation uh, prior to his involvement with the Trump campaign? That's correct. There is, there was an investigation of Manafort kind of totally unrelated to Trump, related to some dealings he had in Ukraine. That probe has kind of gotten enveloped by the, you know, the Trump-Russia case, which that investigation in the main is whether the Trump campaign coordinated with Russia to influence the 2016 election. But it's got some offshoots and it kind of enveloped a lot of work that was already going on. Some of that work involved Manafort kind of unrelated to Trump. So uh, in a more general sense, uh, the special prosecutor, we were told by various uh, people at the beginning of the Mueller investigation that, oh, man, these things often go where you don't expect them. You know, we went from a little uh, subdivision in Arkansas to uh, to Monica and the cigar. Um, And and there are now suggestions of an unmasking controversy. Susan Rice, you got the FISA court, you got uh, obstruction of justice. It's pretty clear that it's unclear where this all ends. His mandate, Bob Mueller's mandate, is actually pretty broad. So the the initial task he's assigned to do is investigate this coordination issue. But then there's this side task, which is any matters that might arise from that probe. And I mean, that could be anything, you know, if you're looking into these people who may or may not be involved in coordination, looking into their business affairs, looking into other things, you can go in a lot of different directions. And it seems like this probe has gone in some new directions. Obstruction is the main one. Um, That has a weird dynamic, too, because we understand that investigators just interviewed Rod Rosenstein, who's actually Bob Mueller's boss. Um, But this probe is getting a little sprawling, which maybe isn't totally surprising. Their mandate is pretty broad. And when you start turning up stones, uh, you know, you'll never know what you find. So so what you're saying is if if they found out that uh, old General Flynn had been cheating on his taxes for 20 years, has nothing to do with Trump and Russia, they'd go they could go after that if they wanted. They could 
yeah, their mandate would allow that sort of uh, investigation. Now, they need Rod Rosenstein's approval to expand the scope of their work. But, you know, the mandate that he signed, the sort of document that gives them the authority to do what they're doing, says any matters that might arise from their, uh, you know, original investigation. Now, that doesn't mean they have sort of carte blanche to just go looking wherever they want. But if they're doing their work and they come across new things. Well, that's a fine line there. Right, (laughs) right. Yeah. it's it's a it's a thorny it's a thorny issue you know so i'm sure republicans would say look you don't have the right to go there and they would say well look we were looking and we had a legitimate reason to look and we found this other possible crime how could we not keep it how about this leaking stuff that could uh, that could who knows who who's doing a lot of this leaking i mean we've got um uh fbi directors a couple of them now saying we we got to crack down on this so, from what i understand it's a federal crime to le- to let the world know that a FISA court issued a warrant, which is what this whole story about Manafort is that came out. So somebody leaked that. Uh, you know, the, there is a very aggressive push on leaks. I think most people in national security apparatuses of both Democrats and Republicans have long complained about this. President Obama actually waged a pretty aggressive crackdown on leaks and charged more people uh, than had been charged in all previous you know, administrations. This administration has taken an even more aggressive aggressive posture towards leaks. Jeff Sessions pretty recently had a press conference where he denounced leaks and said they were opening all sorts of new investigations. So that's definitely, you know, on the minds of people in the administration. As far as I understand, Bob Mueller is not investigating any leaks, but um, but people in the Justice Department certainly are. Matt Zapatowski reports on the Department of Justice for the Washington Post. Matt, any chance Robert Mueller will subpoena uh, photographs of what the president's hair looks like before he combs it and sprays it. God, I'd love to see that. I, I don't think he needs a subpoena, though. So he can just Google. I want to see Melania it, and Donald first thing in the morning. Is it a billionaire quality comb over? Is that the explanation of the do? You think he's bald in the front? Uh, well, I don't know. I'm asking. Like typical male pattern baldness? I don't know. Mm. I don't. You, don't, you probably don't have an answer for this, do you, Matt? <laughs> That's beyond my area of expertise. <laughs> he has no answer because he has some dignity. <laughs> Matt, it's always enlightening. We sure appreciate you taking a couple of minutes. Good to talk to you. Yeah, thanks, guys. All right, thanks. And ended on a sour note. Yeah, he says, yeah, thanks for nothing. He's thinking. So this is an example. Thanks for setting my career back, you couple of idiots. Some of you will kill me for this, but this is the way I I taken in my news yesterday. I was watching MSNBC, and I regularly over the last year have thought, you're talking about this? This is such a nothing burger, if I can use the overused expression. When they were going through the whole Manafort yesterday thing yesterday, I thought, this is something. This is a story, and I'm surprised they haven't heard a word about it on Fox. I'd like to know more about Paul Manafort. He is obviously a really, really colorful character. Yeah, I say. And in ways that are not necessarily kosher. And they told him at his house, as according to the various sources, they told him at his house that he was going to be indicted. Just to lay it out there. Wow. Interesting. And I understand they actually... Patted his wife down, frisked his wife to make sure she didn't have a weapon in the wee hours of the morning. So there she is in her nighty, and you got cops feeling her up to make sure she doesn't have a gat hidden under her little uh, whatever she wears. Well, and they went in there the way they did. I suppose they 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 open the door somehow. They pick the lock. They get in, and then do they yell federal agents? Yeah, don't move or something. Yeah. Come running up the stairs. That's hard to imagine that scene. That's a no knock raid, and that's scary and dangerous. Oh hell yeah! And they did that so he wouldn't have time to destroy evidence. Is the reason you do that? 
So what evidence they got? So they think they're going to say they're going to indict him. He's going to be facing jail time, possibly, over whatever he did. And that's what they're going to use to try to get to Trump. Or others. Or others. It could be Mueller, who everybody swears is a thoroughly decent and sober human being. Yeah. He might have discovered something completely unrelated True. to Trump and Russia. True. And and it's a, it's a big fish. Manafort's a big-time criminal, just not what everybody else is talking about. It's entirely possible. Yeah. Well, and I the think least Man- thing and everywhere else. I'd bet money on the fact that Manafort's a big-time criminal of some sort. Maybe Clinton's back with Monica and he figures <laughs> that out. <laughs> You're listening to the Armstrong and Getty Show. <laughs>